0: If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part eight in the series, The True and False Self, filled with all the fullness of God. Believing that God loves you is one of the most crucial dimensions of identifying and embracing the true self. Another is like it and just as difficult, believing God loves everyone else. And here, to begin, are two uh, epiphanies. One you'll probably like, the other maybe less so. But let's find out. First, a guy named John Egan. You've probably never heard of John Egan. I hadn't because he is a very ordinary fellow. John Egan was a high school teacher who died in 1987, but he also kept a journal that was published shortly after his death, and it revealed that this very ordinary school teacher had dedicated his life to pursuing contemplative prayer. And in that journal, he recorded this life-changing conversation that he had with his spiritual director. He wrote, The heart of it is this, to make the Lord and His immense love for you constitutive of your personal worth. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. God's love for you and His choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. It's beautiful. And more than that, it's true Now, to be sure, many, if not most of us, struggle for most of our lives to get this, to really believe that that's true, and and certainly to live as though this is true. But we can recognize reading it off a slide, hearing me say it out loud, that is beautiful. We can see that. It's inspiring. It's an epiphany. Now, Dorothy Day Dorothy Day led what many might describe as a more conventionally radical lifestyle. She was a Catholic woman well-known for her lifelong devotion to the poor and to the oppressed, to dedicated social activism, to combating sexism and racism and classism, and to the historic apostolic movement of Jesus. She's a fascinating woman to read and to read about, and she said this, "'I really only love God.'" as much as the I love the person, I love the least. Now, if you're anything like me, a line like this one hits you from multiple angles. First, it's a zinger. Well said, powerful, and it makes you nod and say, wow, you know, that kind of thing. But then secondly, and often behind that first reaction, is the terrifying, painful, creeping suspicion that Dorothy Day is right. And behind that... The lurking phantom of a reality avoided by many disciples of Jesus, a terrific failure to obey the most essential of all Jesus' teachings that we have tolerated, accepted, and befriended as if it does not defy our Master and Lord. And that fact is this. There are people that we do not love. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 For weeks now, we've been mining the depths of this profound yet very trying journey of self-discovery, knowing who we are and who we are not, the true and false self, which sounds simple, but for most of us, this is an incredibly difficult undertaking, cluttered by our own sin and trauma and parent wounds and pasts and habits and cultural narratives and the lies of the devil. And this is a problem because knowing who we are and who we aren't is crucial to following Jesus. And I didn't make this up. In 400 A.D., Augustine wrote this, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know you. Around the 12th century, German theologian Meister Eckert said, No one can know God who does not first know themselves. Knowing the true self means accepting, as John Egan learned, that you are the Beloved, defining ourselves, as he wrote, radically as the Beloved of God. You are the Beloved, but so is the person you do not love. So is the person you love the least. And until we believe that this is true, will we ever be released to operate in the freedom of the true self. And this brings us to Matthew chapter 7. Now, bear with me for the next 10 minutes or so, we're going to get a big technical unpacking the teachings of Jesus, but then we'll bring it back to tonight, to tonight and what we do about it. You guys okay? You with me? Great. Thank you so much. I know it's summer. People check out, they stop coming to church, but not you. You're the faithful remnant, so I'm counting on you guys. If you're listening to this on the podcast and you're not here, hear that. Hear that. Soak it in. Matthew chapter 7. Let's read just a single verse. Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus, the teacher, the master, of the Lord says this. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. Now, there's actually quite a bit in this single sentence, so let's unpack it piece by piece. Notice that first word, so. Now, this is a reminder that the line that precedes it isn't some kind of sudden new idea. It is the outworking of everything Jesus had been saying in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, which is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' manifesto about the kingdom of God, his essential collection of core teachings. So, He's been teaching his disciples to embody radical generosity, to give up worry and judgment, to believe in God's incredible goodness, to love their enemies. And he says, listen, having said all that in everything. Now, what does everything mean? Everything. In the mundane things of life, in joy, tragedy, and our professional endeavors, in your own household, towards strangers, toward loved ones, towards friends, enemies, all things, all relationships, everything you do, do to others. Well, there's actually a variety of Greek words that mean others. For example, uh, example uh, the word adelphoi refers to other people who are your friends and family, your own group, your own tribe. But Jesus doesn't use the word adelphoi. He uses anthropoi, which comes from anthropos, the Greek word for a human being in general, meaning everyone in the truest sense of the word. It's sort of like the difference between me saying to our church, I'm glad everyone is here, meaning the people that are in the room, or me saying everyone is made in God's image, meaning all human beings across the history of the universe. When Jesus says others, he means everyone, family, friend, stranger, enemy, man or woman, every race, every culture, ethnicity, nationality, every political affiliation, every religion, every worldview, everyone. That's about as broad a setup as it gets. So in everything meaning everything, do to everyone, meaning everyone. Jesus is saying this is absolutely comprehensive in scope, an all-encompassing way of life. What is the way of life? And he goes on to say, do to others what you would have them do to you. It's as simple as it is radical. Here's a few alternate translations. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, Also do that to them. That's the ASV. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on this passage writes this, the way you want people to treat you is the way you should treat them. Or here's one from the message that's quite nice. Here is a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. Jesus is commanding his disciples to value all people with compassion and empathy. In any and every situation, in any and every interaction, relationship, you are to actively consider the way you would like to be treated, and listen, this is important, if you were them. That's an important distinction. It's, it's about more than what you want, but the empathetic consideration of the other, You're not just thinking about what you want as you. You're putting yourself in their shoes, in their skin, in their story, and you are to do this not just responsively but also actively. So it isn't as simple as saying, well, if it were me, I would like to be, you know, whatever, left alone because I like being left alone. You're asking, how does the other person want to be treated? And then you act on it not just responsively, but actively with initiative. That is, think about it, then go do it. Not just as a response, but as an active way of life to people and to groups and in everything to everyone. Again, here are a few other ways of putting it. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. When Jesus says, this sums up the law and the prophets. He's talking about the scriptures, the story of the Bible. This is what much of the Bible is all about, is how Frederick Dale Bruner puts it. Or in the message, add up God's law and the prophets, and this is what you get. When Jesus argues that this is the law and the prophets, he is essentially saying that this paradigm of living, the whole do actively pursue the good of the other, that is what the entire story of the Scriptures living out the Bible is all about. But there's more to it than that. Jesus is also summarizing His own collection of teachings. Remember, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the way He brings it all together. We can actually outline the entire Sermon on the Mount building to this summary. Here, I'll do it. Watch. It begins with an introduction, the blessings, what we call the Beatitudes. Next, you get Jesus called to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Jesus then comments, on the actual law and the prophets, what they would call the Torah or the Old Testament, saying he has not come to throw that out. He hasn't come to abolish. He's come to fulfill them. And then he explains how that is by using 14 teachings directly from the law and the prophets. That's the whole passage that goes, you have heard it said. And then he quotes the Old Testament before he offers his fulfillment interpretation. But I tell you, then... Finally, we have our text tonight, which is another comment on the Law and the Prophets. So scholars argue that the first comment on the Law and the Prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, coupled with tonight's text, this sums up the Law and the Prophets. They act as respective bookends to the entire Sermon on the Mount because these specific teachings open and conclude with a brief word on the Bible. And then what comes after that is something of an outro to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what we're getting at is that Jesus not only summarizes the Old Testament, he's also summarizing his own manifesto with the same statement. It is all, all about living in right relationships with God and with people. And he believes that. It's not just true of the Sermon on the Mount. It's true of the entire Scriptures, the Bible. In fact, he goes on to say it again. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is asked, point blank, as a Jewish rabbi, name the most important commandment in the entire Bible. And he answers first by quoting Deuteronomy 6, what is called uh, the Great Shema, love the Lord your God. And then he adds to it, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, other people before Jesus also stressed the importance of the commandment to love God. But we think that Jesus is the first to fuse this command with the love of neighbor as a symbiotic relationship and then exalt both of them above all other commands. And remember, they didn't actually ask Jesus for the two greatest commandments, but Jesus understands them as two sides of one coin and therefore inseparable in practice. You can't do one without doing the other. And Jesus refused to isolate a command. Instead, He brings the entire Scriptures together in one profound swoop, love. Now, that's not that surprising. Jesus' way of life is often summarized as love. And why not? That's how Jesus put it Himself. But we like to leave it there, love, open to interpretation, typically the interpretation of the individual. And Jesus, on the other hand, is wildly specific about what it actually means to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. One dimension of that love is the one that still sells with certain crowds today. It sounds real nice. Kindness, self-sacrifice, empathy, generosity, active concern for the other, especially the poor and the oppressed, the overlooked. You can generate some decent hashtags with all that. Still sounds real nice, marketable. But that same dimension eventually becomes problematic with the crowd that prefers to isolate it away from the rest of Jesus' teaching. Dale Bruner says it like this, a racist, classist, sexist, patriarchal, or radical feminist theology cannot be a right interpretation of the Bible because Jesus' love of neighbor commands stand in contradiction to all particularist theologies, the demonizing of the enemy, where opponents are turned into devils, seemingly essential in many theological, political, and social programs, cannot be reconciled with Jesus' love commands. Scholar R.T. France agrees, saying, Jesus' argument for the greatest commandment does not mean, as some modern ethicists have argued, that all you need is love, so that one can dispense with the ethical rules set out in the Torah It is rather to say that those rules find their true role in working out the particular practical implications of love for God and neighbor on which they are based. And finally, theologian Stanley Harawas adds this, once Christians make love a relatively unspecified ideal, they are tempted, if not willing, to do great evils that goods may come because they have lost the skills necessary to discern evil from good. In other words, we only know what Jesus means by love God, love one another, because he tells us how it works in his teaching. It's not up to our discernment, but his. Because another dimension of Jesus' idea of love for God and others is unwavering obedience to his teachings. And that markets to very few people. In John's gospel, Jesus says, point blank, and this is a tough one, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Yikes. And experience that word, commands. Not, if you love me, you will find your own truth in my suggestions. Not, if you love me, you will follow your heart. And as long as you are kind to others according to evolving cultural expectations, that should just about do it. I read this old quote from Martin Luther this week that cracked me up. It's good, but it's also funny. He wrote, it is not right and it is not to be tolerated when one wants to preach, as some dumb spirits still do. If you do not keep the commandments to love God and neighbor, yes, if you are still an adulterer, it doesn't matter. If you just believe, you will be blessed. No, dear man, that won't wash. (laughs) You will not possess the kingdom of heaven. It must come to the place that you keep the commandments and you are in a relation of love with God and neighbor, for it stands there clearly if you want to enter life keep the commandments. Now, I don't always agree with Luther, but what he says here was true before his time and long after. Also, that expression, no, dear man, that won't wash, that's about as good as it gets. Um, Patrick and I used to work for a landscaper in southeast Georgia, and his thing, whenever we'd mess up, which was, you know, regularly, he'd say something, that dog won't hunt all the time. That won't wash is much better, I think. At any rate, you can summarize Jesus' manifesto, Sermon on the Mount, his core teachings, and the entire Bible in the command love God, love other people, as defined by God and through Jesus of Nazareth. And that's incredible to me because so much work has been done to get at the heart of the Scriptures. It's what my job is all about. People go to school for this. I did. And given the incredibly layered, dynamic, living nature of the text, it is an understandably difficult thing to do. Good grief. But not for Jesus, apparently. It's like, hey, Jesus, we dare you to sum up the Bible in one quote. And he's like, easy. Do to other people what you would have them do to others. Love God, love other people. The New Testament actually goes on to reiterate and reinforce this blunt summary several times. James, for example, writes, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Meaning if you do this, you've done it. That is, you have got to the heart of God's law and the Scripture's. The Apostle Paul says it several different ways. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, murder, you shall not steal, you shall shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, it's like he got tired of writing them, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Or he goes on to say in Galatians, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight put it like this. The entire law finds its goal and fulfillment in the observance of this one command to love others as oneself. The entire will of God is about learning to love others or to treat others the way we treat ourselves. And this summary is certainly a popular one. This is arguably the single most famous teaching from Jesus of Nazareth. The whole idea, treat others the way you want to be treated or love your neighbor as yourself. It is often re- referred to in popular culture as what? Anyone? Anyone? The golden rule, exactly. And that title was coined, we think, around the second century by the Roman emperor Alexander Severus, not a disciple of Jesus. But he was so impressed with the wisdom of this saying that he had it inscribed in gold on his chamber wall. And interestingly... Jesus of Nazareth was not the first teacher to say something like this. In fact, there's a junk drawer term for the many variations of this saying, and it's called the maxim of reciprocity, which appears in various forms throughout many religious and philosophical traditions. Ethicists argue... That there are three similar but different maxims of reciprocity or rules to live by. There's first the wooden rule. The wooden rule argues that you should do to others what they do to you, tit for tat. What goes around comes around. When people treat you with kindness, reciprocate. If people treat you poorly, do likewise. This is the lowest level of human maturity. Think about it. This is how my small children behave and, unfortunately, how many adults I know continue to behave to this day. It is a fantastically American philosophy and a deeply selfish human tendency Scratch my back, I scratch yours. Get on my good side and reap the benefits. Screw me over, I write you off. Insult me online, I'll passive-aggressively do the same. Talk about me behind my back, I'll drag your name through the dirt. Slander our political party, we'll destroy yours. You bomb us, we drone strike you. The wooden rule, do unto others as they do unto you. Next, you have the silver rule. Don't do to others what you would not have them do to you. Another famous Jewish teacher who predates Jesus called Rabbi Hillel was challenged once by a Gentile to, and I quote, summarize the entire Torah while I stand on one foot, which I guess means do it fast, unless this guy was really good at standing on one foot. And Hillel replied by saying, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Or Confucius famously said, whatever you do not want others to do to you, do not do that to them. The idea was well represented in the ancient world prior to Jesus. And it's a fine rule of life, I think. I mean, who would argue that this is a bad idea? But notice that while Rabbi Hillel and Confucius phrase the maxim of reciprocity in the negative, Jesus repurposes it for the positive, One is passive, one is active. Jesus asks more of his disciples in his summary than Hillel or Confucius. There's a world of difference between not doing harm and actively seeking the good of someone else. Jesus is asking for more than just refraining from bad behavior against neighbors. He requires, he commands active and creative initiative to treat others with love that is never contingent On whether or not people treat you with love. So Jesus golden rule exceeds the wooden and silver rules by a long shot. And from what we can tell, Jesus' take on the maxim of reciprocity, or the golden rule, was a brand new teaching in its time. No one had put it this way before. So leave it to Jesus to take the wisdom of sages throughout the world, and with just a slight variation of words, inject it with the radical love of God and change lives in the process, and make it, you know, infinitely more difficult. And that is why, I would argue, It seems so radical to Jesus' audience. It did then and it does now because it should come as no surprise that God defines love in far more subversive, radical, and incredible ways than you and I think possible or even fair. And this subversive, radical, incredible, seemingly impossible, and often seemingly unfair paradigm of love is to hear Jesus tell it at the core of the scriptures and at the core of Jesus' idea of what he called the kingdom of God. See, We don't want to hear this, but learning to accept our identity as beloved of God is only part of the process of being filled with all the fullness of God. John Egan also wrote this God is asking me, the unworthy, to forget my unworthiness and that of my brothers, and to advance in the love which has redeemed and renewed us all in God's likeness, and to laugh after all, at the preposterous idea of unworthiness. And notice those haunting words, and that of my brothers. Now, before we end, turn to the right in your Bibles, back to 1 John chapter 4, where Cam read just a few minutes ago. Now, up until now, I've been bridging the gap between Jesus teaching on love and what Dorothy Day said about you know, our love for other people and how that reveals our love for God. But now we're gonna let the scriptures themselves make that connection as explicitly as possible. One more time, First John chapter seven, beginning with the very first verse. Let's read once more. Dear friends, let us, lo- did I tell you guys chapter seven? Cam told me to fix this and I did not. It's chapter four, isn't it? Chapter four, I wonder what that says. Oh, that's right, that's right up there. Trust the slides and don't listen to me believe I made a face like he's been doing that the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, listen to this. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Again, with the if, always the if. If we love one another, how is God's love made complete in us? If we love one another. If we love one another, defined by obedience to Jesus' teachings, if, if we actively seek the good of others, even over our own good. And if you think I'm going too far with that whole even over our own good thing, nope, that's in there too. Listen to this from Paul. Do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, each of you to the interests of the other. And what does it mean if we don't? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Man, I don't like that. See, this is no good for me. That's hard for you to believe, I know. You're thinking, man, Josh is so gregarious. He's always running around hugging everybody. He makes... (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's not laugh that much. Come on. He makes these notoriously warm, extroverted people in our church, you know, the Cams and Katys and Tabs and Kianas of Van City, he makes them look like grumpy old hermits. That's what I hear all the time. But no, the truth is, this is no good for me, and I'll tell you why. In my ongoing quest to uncover and banish the false self, the imposter, my flesh, my shadow side, I have learned that I am a deeply relational person, which seems like something you might know about yourself, but no, it took lots of uh, years of spiritual formation and therapy to figure that out. Apparently, I'm a deeply relational person. I don't want lots of shallow friendships. I want a small handful of very meaningful relationships. Now, so far, that's fine, but here's the catch. It's embarrassing to admit fundamental failure of one's life code, their ethos. I guess what I want is to be a dedicated person. That's important to me, to be unwavering and uncompromising. I want to be uh, disciplined and dedicated. So I choose certain ethical standards by which I live, and I refuse to budge from them. Things that are personal to me, don'ts, like, you know, I don't drink personally, I don't eat animal products, I don't swear, you know, whatever, do's. I I practice committed rhythms of spiritual disciplines. I eat healthy. I go to church, whatever. For me, good things. Good things haunted by the inconvenient reality of goodness without love. And I think of Paul's words, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And I have, like all of us, clamored and clawed my way up and out of the bewildering tangle of fluid, flimsy definitions of love. I do not believe that love is mere tolerance or acceptance as defined by laughably precarious and ever-evolving cultural standards. I do not believe that love is cheap, saccharine sentimentality, warm, positive vibes about people and pizza and pop songs. Love, I believe, is more than a challenge to such things. It is an affront to these superficial paradigms. And I believe it because my Master and Lord says it is true, and I have ordered my life in obedience to His teachings, but one of them, one frustrating command, tends to slip through my otherwise uncompromising grip. Not a positive emotional disposition, but the willingness to seek the good of the other as defined by the teachings of Jesus above my own and even at expense to myself. Why? Why is this hard for me, pastor, Christian of decades? And the answer, embarrassingly, is ego, fragility, narcissism. Because I receive the failure of others as And indignity, not on God's behalf, but on my own. If someone flakes, it's not just a lapse in maturity and integrity. It's because they don't love me. And if they don't love me, then screw them. If someone fails the church, they're failing me. If someone changes or moves on or cancels, then they're abandoning me. And if I give myself permission to reach out for something that's true, that all people are broken and bent and sinful then I also allow myself to repurpose it for myself. People are inherently terrible, untrustworthy, faithless, so who needs them? And if I can get there first to that place of shutting down and walling off, well, then maybe it won't hurt so bad. Because saying that I want love, that I want to be loved and to give love to other people, and that I've also been disappointed, well, that's embarrassing and it feels pathetic or painful. But if people are really just so awful, well, then it just makes sense. It's not me, it's them, or it's us. Recently, I had a bad row with someone I've been friends with for years. See, a while back, I made a system. It started embarrassing, and it gets worse. Stay with me. So I'm older now. My friends are older. A lot of us have families or responsibilities or busy schedules, so spending time together often takes planning and effort. I get it. Even so a guy can only take so much. So my system is this. If I reach out to a friend to hang out and I get a freeze out, you know, that's like no reply, no nothing. That's a three-strike rule. Three freeze outs, I'm never asking them to hang out ever again for the rest of my life. (laughs) This is true. If they do answer, but they say, no, thank you, which is totally fine, by the way, still only so much a guy can handle. So five declined invitation, I'm never asking you to hang out again for the rest of my life. Now, a few friends and I we have a similar standard for something we do every month called movie club, which is exactly what it sounds like. Get together every month and we watch movies. We've been doing this for almost a decade now with the same basic six people. But in the early days, all sorts of people would hear about this and they'd want to come into it. Oh, I want to come to movie club. So we'd be like, okay, yeah, come over. We wouldn't tell them this. Um, We had a secret rule. If anyone ever left before the movie or movies, were totally over. They're banished for life. That's less to do with personal sensitivity and more about respect for movies. At any rate, so I've got these systems, movie club notwithstanding. And one, one morning, a friend of mine asked why they hadn't been invited to some outing or event that had happened, and I told them about the system, <laughs> because <laughs> there had been three freeze outs from this friend, and I said, that's it, get bent, you know, you've <laughs> asked somebody else. And they were pretty ticked off about the whole thing. And they thought it was cruel and rule-mongering, and maybe they were right. But what they didn't realize, and what honestly I didn't realize until this uh, conversation, was that the umbrella over it all was really my sad insecurity, my hurt feelings, my felt need for love, and my inability to respond to pain with more love. And I guess I think on some level of Jesus' seemingly impossible love decree as an unachievable ideal, as something that only he can do. And he did. I mean, it's all right there. Jesus was and is gracious and forgiving. He died for his enemies. He prayed for those who did evil to him. But I chalk all that up to the incredible hardship of Jesus' remarkable life, man of sorrows, son of suffering. He died carrying out his own standard of self-sacrificial love. And then I somehow refuse to acknowledge what I know to be true, Jesus is the truest paradigm of a fully integrated, spirit-led, emotionally healthy, mature human being. The love of Jesus is not just some expression of His suffering. It is the natural outworking of the best way to be a human being, the way to freedom, the way to joy, the way to the fullness of God. And the drab wallpaper of my own spiritual and emotional immaturity. Maybe it's not just that my quiet time isn't long enough or that my Bible reading isn't as engaged as it should be. Maybe if I don't love people, I can't ever really love God. But people can be so unlovable. (laughs) So we come up with reasons not to love them. Sometimes we call it activism, we hate the bad guys our political and ideological enemies. And we let the world know through our social media virtue signaling and our snarkiness and cynicism that they are oh so bad and we, by inference, are oh so good. And then we make a fool of Jesus, a man who ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and zealots and corrupt religious leaders and fundamentalists and supremacists and who invited all of them, come, follow me. The Jesus who calls forth from the left and the right the white supremacists and progressive pride flag fundamentalists and the fallen megachurch millionaires and the mass shooters and issues the same decree over them all. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. How naive, this Jesus. How enabling. The wrong side of history, this guy. And our tribes pat our heads and whisper their permission over our unwillingness to love. It's all for a good cause. Maybe we don't love, and we call it activism. Or maybe it's just unforgiveness. I've been hurt. I've been wronged. In his book, Abba's Child, Brendan Manning writes, we must forgive ourselves for being unlovable, inconsistent, incompetent, irritable, pot-bellied. We must know that our sins cannot keep us from God. And that's true. We have to do that. We also have to forgive everyone else for all the same things. Forgiveness does not mean there are never consequences for our actions that we readily sweep evil done to us and others under the table and just forgive and forget. Forgiveness does not mean that relationships are never broken, that real damage is never done. Forgiveness does not mean condoning bad, abusive, or sinful behavior. And too often, the church has enabled horrific, even criminal behavior, ostensibly in the name of forgiveness and restoration, but often, in reality, in true service to keeping evil men in positions of power, to protect empires, and to safeguard bank accounts. No, evil has serious, lasting consequences. Sin destroys lives. It pays in death. And yet, we often take up the sentencing work best left to God and consequences by punishing those who hurt us with our unforgiveness. And we call it consequences, or we put an emotional health spin on it and call it. Boundaries. Boundaries are a good thing, not when we abuse them to trap people in unforgiveness. And we believe this gives us power and protection and security, that it will satisfy us and vindicate us, but it won't. See, in our quest for balance, to teach and encourage emotional health and to deal with the real ramifications of sin and relational wounding, we moved the needle and shifted the paradigm. Meaning, we rightly, I think, wanted to correct the unrealistic, shiny Christian fantasy of relational sin immediately sponged away by a magical, I'm sorry, and if it doesn't, well, then someone isn't being Christian enough. This is not only unrealistic, but dangerous. So, we, again, rightly, I think, moved the needle, but then we kept moving it until we had all but forgotten the radical and redemptive, forgiving love of Jesus, And we were contented to wall people off and close our hearts to restoration under the guise of emotional health. And we forgot the God who died for His enemies, who prayed forgiveness over those killing Him. That is the goal of faithful discipleship. That is the paradigm. So maybe someone hurt you Maybe the transgression felt monumental or maybe in the big scheme of things, it doesn't really amount to much, but in your mind, damage was done. So maybe relationship was fractured and maybe things might not go back to the way they were and maybe that makes sense, but can you bring this person to mind and bless them? Not begrudgingly, not in obligation to a rule, but can you see your own brokenness reflecting back at you? in that person, and thank God for the grace available to both of you. Can you want what's best for them? Pray the best over them. Can you walk in their presence without anger or resentment? Unforgiveness, I have learned the difficult way, is ultimately a kind of blasphemy, because it denies and denounces the personhood of God in a way that walls us off from what we most need, our deepest soul desire, to somehow believe that in spite of everything, God is good enough and big enough to love and forgive us for being broken and imperfect and sinful. And when we walk in unforgiveness, we insist it cannot be so. No one can love God Who does not love others. Why is this wall ever before us? Why? Why is it that we can't even know God if we refuse to walk in love for other people? Because God is love. To deny love is to deny God. And to deny love is to deny self-awareness. The failure to love is a radical hypocrisy because all of us crave love, all of us need love, and all of us know deep down that we think and act and live in ways that are fundamentally unlovely, that we are unlovable, inconsistent, incompetent, irritable, and pot-bellied in Brennan Manning's words, and those of us who follow Jesus embark on this lifelong struggle to know and accept and believe that our sins cannot keep us from God. And on that same narrow and treacherous road, we must somehow learn to believe that the same is true of everyone else and to release them to the love and forgiveness of God, also broken, also beloved. And if he loves us, he loves them. And if he loves them, he loves us. And that is the great longing and relief of our hearts. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. Can support Vancity financially at vancity.church give.